Hello, and welcome to Christ Fellowship of Elizabeth. We're so happy that you decided to join us today. This is the teaching podcast from our Sunday worship service, recorded at the Liberty Center in Elizabeth, New Jersey. Our goal as a church is to love God, make disciples, and change the world. We hope that this message inspires you and helps to lead you deeper in your relationship with Jesus. Enjoy. I'm excited to share today's message with you this morning. We've been going through the entire Bible, as you know, and it's pretty crazy to think that we actually finished the Old Testament, believe it or not. Today, we're going to dive into the New Testament. But before we do so, I want to take one more look at what we've learned. So looking back for a moment, I hope, hopefully you've noticed that all of the books together make one big story. They make one big story. It's God interacting with people. So we start with Adam and Eve, and then it's Noah, and then we get into Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Joshua. We get into the judges, the kings, the prophets. It's one giant story, and it's a beautiful story. It's really amazing. But if you notice, there's something else going on right at, at, at another level, a deeper level, a little bit deeper. Something else is going on. It's a repetitive story. In that deeper level, that repetitive story is... People sin, God brings judgment, people repent, God forgives, and it happens all the time. People sin, God brings judgment, people repent, God forgives. And then there's one deeper level still. The deepest level of all is actually something else that's going on. God is working something out. God is working something out. God is working out his plan of salvation. It's a plan that he promised all the way back in the beginning. It's an original plan that he promised in the book of Genesis, where it says this in Genesis 3, verse 15. This is the first time we see it. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. That's the first time he mentions this promise. This, ver- this verse refers to Satan and Jesus. That's what it's referring to. Satan strikes Jesus' heel when Jesus is crucified on the cross and killed. But Jesus crushes Satan's head when he's resurrected by the power of God. See, when it all comes down to the most essential part of life, when it all boils down to the most important part of life, it comes down to what is God doing in the background that you don't see? What is God actually doing? What's, What's going on? Because it's all about God. A lot of times we don't notice that we just look at that superficial level, that surface level, but it's all about what God is doing. When we look at our own lives, we tend to look at the most general part, you know, again, that surface level, our occurrences, our events, the circumstances, all good things, by the way, none of that is bad, all very important things. But are we only looking at those circumstances? Are your eyes fixed only on your circumstances? Is that the only thing you see? And then there's something deeper than that, too. Again, when you look at our own lives, we might see the circumstances, but right below that, if we're honest, we can see some repetitive patterns, too, especially when we make the same mistakes over and over and over because of our own bad habits. That's a whole other story that's going on in our life that we sometimes don't even notice. But yet, going down to that deepest level that we already talked about, God is working on something in all of our lives, in our backgrounds, whether we see it or not. At the deepest level, God is working. Most of the time, we don't notice until it's blatantly obvious, until it finally comes to fruition, and God just says, look at what I'm doing. But whether you see it or not, he's been working in the background in your life, in my life, and everyone's life as well. The question is, can you see his fingerprints made by the work of his hands in your life? Can you see his footsteps made by him walking alongside you throughout your whole life? Because he's doing it. Because at the end of the day, it's all about what God is doing. As we've gone through the entire Bible, we've looked along with the side view of all these things that are going on, all these different levels, and we've been able to see the story unfold. We've been able to see people repeat this pattern of doing the same things over and over, and we've also witnessed God working out his work of art. We've been able to see it as spectators from the outside as we've been looking at the Bible this whole time since January. When Adam and Eve sinned, God told us that plan originally, but it wasn't the only time he said it. He actually repeats this. He reminds us all the time throughout all of the books, basically, of the Old Testament. In fact, you can look at the Old Testament as a giant foreshadowing 
of what God was about, is about to do. You know, last week, Billy said it in a great way. I, I loved it. He said, in that first stage, after God separates, he starts brooding. In other words, he's preparing. He's getting something ready. But then after the brooding, he starts filling. He starts filling it up. So you can look at it like this, all the basketball heads. In basketball terms, you can think of it like this. From Genesis to Malachi, all of that process is an assist. It's the pass. He's passing the ball. It's an assist. And what's to come is the slam dunk. So from January to August, we've been learning and reading God's word, and we've really been learning at the assist. But what's about to come is the slam dunk. And that slam dunk is the New Testament, which we're going to get into today. That slam dump, dump, <laughs> that slam dunk is the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And yeah, we're going to get into all four today. See, the word gospel comes from a Greek origin, which means good news. It means good news. When we say gospel, we specifically refer to the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That's what we mean specifically. And these four books talk about the gospel, which is the story of Jesus here on earth. Now, I'm sure you've asked yourself, because I have too. I'm sure at some point you've asked yourself, wait, why are there four books that tell the same story? Essentially, they're saying the same thing. And the answer is really simple. It's really simple. The reason there are four gospels telling the same story is because Jesus is that dope. Like, he's that dope. He deserves four stories being told of his life. He's so cool that he gets his story told four different times. You know, there's no denying who's the most important person in the Bible. Not at all. You can't deny it. The only one with four stories. But seriously, though, there is a really good reason for there to be four Gospels. And each one, although telling the same story of Jesus, emphasizes a different attribute of Jesus. It focuses on a different part of his character, a different title, a different role that he serves. They all, eat, they all focus on something different. So let's look at some basic information from each of these books. Each author wrote with a specific purpose in mind. So looking at the book of Matthew, this book was written by Matthew who was one of Jesus' disciples, his trade, uh, before becoming a disciple, he was a tax collector. So he wasn't, he wasn't the crowd's favorite. Like, people didn't, you know, think about it. Like, you don't think of IRS and think, oh, those are my people. No, not at all. So this tax collector especially, you know, he overcharged. So, you know, no one really cared for him. And Jesus took him as a disciple. The book was written. There's a, there's a lesson there. I mean, there's, there's something deep in there if you think about it. The book was written around A.D. 50 to A.D. 60. Now, I want to explain something for a second, because this is the first time we see A.D. Up until now, it's all been B.C., all been B.C. B.C. stands for before Christ. A.D. refers to, anybody know? Actually, no. It's, 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 it's like a Latin word, Adonis Domini, Adonis Domini, which means in the year of the Lord, in the year of the Lord. So it's just separating basically before Jesus was born, and then boom, when Jesus was born, that's A.D., That's when Jesus was born. So when we say that this book was written A.D. 50 to A.D. 60, right, this was basically written um, approximately 50 to 60 years after Jesus was born. So I just wanted to explain that because you're going to be seeing that for the rest of the New Testament, all those dates. So to give you some perspective of this, Jesus was crucified somewhere around A.D. 30. There's a range from like A.D. 30, around that time. He was crucified around then. So this is important to consider, to understand, because that means the book of Matthew was written 20 to 30 years after Jesus was crucified. Why is that significant? Because that means the people that saw Jesus live were still around when the book of Matthew was written. They could have called out fake news right away if it was fake news, but they didn't because it was true. This was the life of Jesus. The people that were around Jesus when he was crucified, all those people that experienced Jesus's ministry, they were still around when the book of Matthew was coming around. So it's really important to understand that. It was only 20 to 30 years later. Matthew's original audience were Jewish people. So he focused on the fulfillment of the Old Testament and its prophecies. His original audience knew the Old Testament, and they were still waiting for the Messiah. They were still waiting for that promised Messiah, that promise that God made since all the way back in Genesis. This book has 28 chapters. Now, Mark... Mark is the next book. Mark was not one of the 12 disciples of Jesus, but he was a connected dude. Um, connect, what's, what's the word? There's a movie that I saw. I can't remember. When it, oh, man, I'm drawing a blank here. This, this is off script. I'm not good off script. Anyway, he was a connected guy, a connected fellow, what, a good fellow, what, a made man. There you go. It's probably not a good reference right now, but he was connected. He really was because he wasn't a disciple himself, 
but he was close to the apostle Paul. He was close to the apostle Peter. And he was actually cousins with Barnabas. Barnabas was one of the early church leaders. So he wasn't a disciple, but I'm telling you, my man was connected. He knew a whole lot of big people, a whole lot of important people. The book of Mark was written even before Matthew. Again, the same range, AD 50 to AD 60. But it's, it's commonly believed that it was the first book because Matthew and Luke actually refer a lot to the book of Mark. Mark's original audience were the people of Rome. At that time, Rome is Roman Empire, right? They were running things. Most of his original audience were not Jewish. So he focused on sticking to the main points. Like he, he focused on the heart of the matter when it came to the gospel. It's actually the best book to start with. Um, for someone that doesn't know the gospels, it's the best book to start with because it's the easiest read and the shortest read, only having about 16 chapters. Now, the book of Luke. Luke was a doctor who was close friends with the apostle Paul. He was actually a Gentile, which means he was not Jewish. He was the only non-Jewish author of the Gospels. He became a Christian when the first missionaries left Jerusalem and started spreading the gospel in other nations. So he actually was one of the first to receive, let's say, you know, from, from those missionary trips. Now, the book of Luke, again, was written around A.D. 60. Notice, A.D. 60 to 61. Notice all of these three uh, Gospels were written around the same time. And the book of Mark, what, what, what the book of Mark lacked in detail, the book of Luke made up for it and then some. Like, it had 24 chapters, but it had the most verses and the most words than any other gospel of, of the four. In fact, it makes it, that makes it the longest book in the New Testament. The book of Luke is the longest book in the New Testament. Now, when you understand why Luke was writing, what his purpose was, you'll get why it was so long. Because his goal, his purpose was to write an historical account of the life of Jesus. His focus was to be as detailed and as accurately detailed as possible. He did plenty of research and homework, even speaking to eyewitnesses and getting details from them. You know, obviously he was close to Paul and other, and other followers of Christ, but I can imagine him even going back to Mary because there's some details that you'll read in Luke. There's like, wait, you know a whole lot of family history. You spoke to someone in the family. There's no way that um, like Paul was telling you these details. So he did a whole lot of research. And now the last book, John. John was a disciple of Jesus. He was the disciple that lived the longest. His book was written a bit later, around AD 80 to AD 90. So again, just understanding the situation. If Jesus died around AD 30, right? That was his crucifixion around AD 30. AD 90 is like 60 years later. So, you know, it's, it's a little far, right? Most of those people probably aren't around anymore right, at this point. If they were 10 years old, maybe, like 70. But still, like it's, not, it's important to understand because some people might think, oh, this was written hundreds and hundreds of years after Jesus lived. No, it's relatively close. Like 60 years ago was not a long time ago, right? Not a long time ago. So for, for in this case, John was the, the book that was written the furthest away from Jesus' crucifixion. Now, John's original audience was a mix of Jewish and non-Jewish people, right? So uh, most, they were pretty much new Christians, but some even non-Christians that were seeking. Some people that, you know, were looking and they were, they were trying to learn about Christ, but they weren't technically Christian yet. That was his audience. The go this gospel is the most different from all four. In fact, the other three gospels are called synoptic gospels because they're pretty much really similar in their details. They kind of borrow information from each other. And, you know, there's a whole lot of connection there. John is the most different from the four. Not meaning that they contradict in that sense. No, they still have the same core gospel, right? But the way they tell, that John tells the story here is very different. There are a lot of events that happened in the book of John that weren't told in the other gospels. John's focus was building the reader's faith on who Jesus, oh, Jesus, here we go again. Man, Jesus truly was God. I'll read that again. John's focus was on building the reader's faith on who Jesus truly was, God. See, having more than one gospel helped reach different crowds of people, different groups of people. And that was important back then. And that's still important now. So back then, having all those different gospels allowed people to reach, you know, uh, uh, reach other people with the story of Jesus, same story, but different approach. And again, that's super important even for us today. That's still important today. It's still relevant today. Today, when we share the gospel with people that don't know Jesus, what we have to do is meet them where they are. That's how you do it. You have to meet them where they are. 
If they're not near Jesus, you, you can't drag them. You have to meet them where they are. Most people who don't, or who aren't close to Jesus are not close to Jesus for one of these following reasons I want to mention. One of them might be lack of knowledge of who Jesus is. This person just doesn't really have a clear understanding of who Jesus really is. The second reason might be they're dealing with pain. That's a totally different reason from the first, right? That this person has been hurt by someone else or by a situation in life, and they haven't healed from it. So they're dealing with hurt. So that approach has to be totally different. Or it could just be pride. The person does not want any change to their lifestyle. It's totally different from the other reasons. See, if someone doesn't really know the gospel, you need to explain it. You need to clarify whatever confusion they might have or fill in whatever, mis- whatever information they don't have and let them know who Jesus truly is. See, your job there is you need to tell God's truth. You need to speak God's truth in that situation. Sometimes us as Christians, we're scared to do that. No, you need to speak God's truth because some people just don't know. They don't know. But if someone is dealing with pain, you can explain who Jesus is till your face turns blue. It's not going to make a difference because that's not the problem. If they're dealing with pain, it's not that they're missing information. What they need is healing through God's love. You can share truth when the opportunity comes up, but you need to emphasize God's love. Your job there is to share God's love. That's a totally different approach than the first one. And in the third case, if someone's simply unwilling to accept Jesus, you're wasting your time trying to win arguments because it's not an, a knowledge issue. It's a heart issue. It's pride. It's totally different from the other two. So your job there is to pray, <laughs> but your job really is to extend God's patience and give God's, God's grace. Because think about it. Like, you know, God was patient with you too. You know, God extended grace with you too. That was me, right? Sorry. So whenever we try to reach someone that doesn't have a relationship with Jesus, it's important to meet them where they are. It's important to consider what's keeping them from being close to God in the first place. Is it lack of knowledge of who Jesus really is? Is it pain? Is it pride? You know, that's just as relevant today as it was when these gospels were first being written. See, having these different approaches are super important and not just for non-believers or non-Christians, people that don't know Christ. This is also important for us. This is also important. We deal with these things too. It might not be bringing you to Jesus if you're already on this side of things, right? But these things could be the very things that are keeping you from being closer to Jesus. In fact, I pray that right now you start to think about it and even pray and even ask God right now. Right now in silence, in your mind, no one's going to see you. Just ask God, God, is there anything that's keeping me from being closer to you? Is there anything that's keeping me from drawing closer to you? And let's look at those examples too. Is it lack of knowledge? And you might think, I know who Jesus is. Like, I'm Christian. What do you mean, Joel? Yeah, but maybe you stop seeking him. Maybe you stop seeking him. You never outgrow your need to learn more about God. I'm convinced that we're we're never going to stop learning about God, even in eternity. I feel like for the rest of eternity, we're going to be learning new things about God. I don't think that's ever going to end because there's no no depth. There's no, how do I say, there's like a bottomless, um, you know, pit of, of, of who God is. That was a bad analogy, but you get my point. We're going to learn that forever. You guys get what I'm saying. Don't mess with me. I know what it is to struggle with seeking him more too. I know what that is, like not seeking him enough. I know what it is not to dig enough into his word. I know what it is to, you know, need to find quiet time in a quiet space without distraction so I can listen more and learn more about who God is and, and even listen to his voice. I get that. I understand what that is. I've been there. And you might wonder, when is enough enough? The truth is, only you can gauge that. Only you can answer when is enough enough, right? Because only you know how much the Holy Spirit is convicting your heart. Only you know how much God is challenging you. That's only something that you and God can discuss. No one else can really answer for you. But I'll tell you this one thing. The more you seek him, the more you know him. The more you know him, the more you love him. So the question is, are you seeking him? Are you hungry and thirsty to know who Jesus is? Are you hungry and thirsty to know who Jesus is? The second thing might be you're dealing with pain. Are you dealing with some kind of pain? Just like some people don't accept Jesus because 
they're, they're hurt by someone or they were hurt by someone or a situation that they can't get over. Even us as Christians deal with hurt that might be keeping us from growing closer to Jesus. And I know healing takes time, but I also know you have to allow the healing to even start. It takes time, but you have to allow it to start. There's a releasing of the pain that has to occur. And I know what it is to be hurt by someone inside the church and outside the church because we're all imperfect people. No one's perfect. We're all imperfect people. But I'll tell you this. If your eyes are focused on your pain, then that means your eyes are not focused on Jesus. Are you giving God the space to heal your heart? Are you allowing God the space to heal your heart? And that's a real thing. And number three, pride. Pride is the toughest one to see in yourself sometimes. It's definitely the toughest one to admit because, let's face it, it's pride, right? It's the very thing you're dealing with. It's definitely the hardest one to admit, you know? But pride has kept many Christians stuck as spiritual infants and spiritual children instead of maturing into spiritual adulthood. In fact, there are many Christians that are convinced that they're spiritually mature when in actuality they're spiritually immature. They haven't grown. Because of pride. That pride might be in their knowledge, how much you think you know, or how much you actually know about God or the Bible. See, knowledge of God and the Bible in itself does not create maturity. It doesn't. That makes for a big brain, but by itself, it does not make spiritual maturity. You need it. You need to know about God. But just the knowledge itself does not make you mature. Could it be experiences, pride in your experiences, how much God has used you in ministry, the way you've served, the things you've done in the church, uh, the number of years you've been Christian, the number of years you've been coming to church. Sometimes we take pride in our experiences or even our blessings, right? How much God has blessed you outside of church, just in your life in general, in your job, in your finances, in your family, Maybe just in your personal accomplishments. See, there may be this sense of superiority, this feeling like, you know, I'm the best. I'm pretty good. Like, I look around, I'm pretty good. You know, I think I got things together. It might be that kind of pride. But you know what? There's another kind of pride too, right? It may be a different kind of pride from that first one. And this pride doesn't say I'm the best. This pride says I'm good enough. It's very different. It's very different from the first one. I'm good enough. You don't think I'm the best, but you think, yeah. I'm, I'm all right. I'm good enough. I'm okay. Going to church, serving, changing one or two things in your life. Maybe you stop cursing or you change something else here in your life. I'm good enough. You feel satisfied and you think God should feel satisfied too. Like, I'm satisfied, God. You should be good too. We should be okay with this. You're comfortable. I'm not the best, but I'm good enough. See, if we're honest, I think we can all admit that we know what it is to feel comfortable. I know what that is. We all know what it is to feel comfortable, but that's a very scary place to be. It's a very scary place to be because you're not saying I'm the best, but secretly you're saying, "Um, I'm better than these people over here. Like, I'm not the best, but I'm better than people over here. Or I'm better than where I was. I'm better than where I was. So, God, I mean, you have to give me credit for that. I'm better than where I was when you found me. (laughs) Forgetting where God found you, I'm going to bring that word up again. Was in the dumps, right? He was bringing, he, he brought you out of a really bad place, and you're comparing yourself to that. But see, that could be the reason why you don't have this sense of urgency to grow anymore with God because you're comfortable and you think you're good enough. So the question is, are you willing to let God confront different areas of your life? Or have you stopped allowing God to confront areas in your life? These reasons, lack of knowledge, pain, pride, they could be leading you into sin, or I would even say more sin because some of it is already sin, to be honest. But they could be leading you into more sin and you don't even notice. Because this usually happens as a slow fade. It starts as an inch, and without even realizing it, it's a mile. It's a slow fade when you stop seeking him. It's a slow fade when you box yourself in in your pain because you're scared of being hurt or you're scared of releasing your hurt. It's a slow fade when you start building these walls around your heart with your pride. That's a slow fade. It's brick by brick. It's inch by inch. And so I want to pray that we allow God this morning to check our hearts and really reveal to us if there's anything that's keeping us away from growing closer to him. I even pray right now, if everyone just bow your heads for a moment. Dear God, we come to you this morning, just humble at heart, praying that you reveal to us if there's anything that's keeping us from drawing closer to you, please let us see it this morning. If there's 
lack of knowledge, or even just needing to seek you more, if it's pain or if it's pride, please reveal it to us in this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I think the Gospels speak to this very clearly. Each Gospel confronts one of these reasons. Each one. It really does. And I want us to look at how each of them actually approach this, you know, for a moment. So we'll break it down a little bit for us to get it. And we'll start with the book of Matthew. The book of Matthew confronts our lack of knowledge of who Jesus is. And Matthew presents Jesus as the Messiah. Let me say that again. Book of Matthew confronts our lack of knowledge of who Jesus is. And Matthew presents Jesus as the Messiah, as the Messiah, the promised king. He begins the book with a record of the genealogy of Jesus, you know, tracing him back, proving that Jesus comes from the family line of King David and then even further back to Abraham. And this was important because, again, his, his um, audience were Jewish people. So they knew that Scripture said that the Messiah had to come from the family line of these people, of King David and of Abraham. They knew that. Matthew set out to prove how Jesus fulfilled all of the messianic prophecies from the Old Testament. It's the, it's the, the gospel that draws the most from the Old Testament prophecies. You know, it, it quotes or refers to over 60 prophetic passages. That's by far more than any of the other gospels. He repeated a similar phrase that said this, as the Lord said through the prophet, for this is what the prophet has written. So was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet. He kept referring to that so that they knew, listen, I'm not just making this up. Look who said it. You go back. Look who said it. And now look what happened. Look how it matches. Don't you see it? He, re- he was confronting that lack of knowledge of who Jesus it was and still is. I want to look at some of these fulfilled prophecies. These aren't all of them, but I'm, I'm going to mention quite a few of them. And they should pull up behind me. The Messiah, the Messiah would be a son of David. That just means he comes from the family line of David. He would be born of a virgin. He was born, so it's crazy. We all know the the miraculous birth, the immaculate conception, is that what it's called, right? We all know that. We didn't, a lot of us didn't know. That was a prophecy from way back when. That was something that was said a whole long time ago. It wasn't just something that was made up just for Jesus to be cool. Um, so the, the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. He'll be called the king of the Jews. He'll be called a Nazarene, which is someone that was born in or raised, forgive me, in Nazareth. Well, he was raised in Nazareth. Uh, the Messiah would be would baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. John the Baptist said, the one that's coming after me, he's going to do this. And that's what he did. The Messiah would heal sicknesses and diseases. The Messiah would speak in parables. He would have a messenger to go before him, John the Baptist. He would not open his mouth to defend himself when he was going to be killed. He would be led like a lamb to the slaughterhouse. He'd be physically beaten and people would watch and enjoy his suffering. I don't know how the Jewish people of the time saw the life of Jesus and didn't realize that's the Messiah. That's him. He's fulfilling everything that the word word says. How did he not see that match? How do we not see that match? How don't we see it? This is the Messiah. He'd be physically beaten and people would watch and enjoy his suffering. He would be offered vinegar to drink on the cross. He'd cry out, my Lord, my Lord, why have you forsaken me? He would be buried in a rich man's tomb. God was making it very easy to see that Jesus was the promised Messiah. He came to earth and completed the promise that was made all the way back in the garden. There's one verse that Matthew uses, that, that, that he quotes Jesus, that sums this up really well. Look at what Jesus says in Matthew 5, verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus fulfills God's promise from way back when. In the book of Matthew, we can see who Jesus is. He's the Messiah, the promised king, our savior. It's really obvious. The evidence is there. The people that saw Jesus should have easily noticed who Jesus was. They should have gotten it easily that he was fulfilling all these prophecies. But many of them had their eyes fixed on their circumstances, not on what God was doing. They didn't see what God was doing. They were too busy looking at the circumstances. When we see God in his word, we have the opportunity to see who Jesus is. When we spend that quiet time with God, God reveals to us who Jesus is. Is The question is, 
Are you digging into his truth? Are you seeking him? Just because you've heard something doesn't mean you've learned it. A lot of times us as Christians, we say, oh, I've heard that story already. Oh, I've read that verse already. Yeah, but have you learned it? Has it been revealed in your heart? Has, it, has there been a personal revelation? There hasn't been a connection between that word and your heart. Is it in you? Just because you know it here doesn't mean you know it. You've heard it. Have you learned it? Do you live it? Do you know Jesus in that depth? There's a big difference from hearing and actually knowing. A huge difference. Has it become a re- revelation within you? The, do- the Jewish people were looking right at Jesus without realizing they were looking at the face of God. Can you imagine They were looking right at Jesus without realizing they were looking at the face of God. We can be facing truth right now and never understand it. Are you seeking him? Are you seeking understanding? You can be looking right at truth right in front of you. But if your eyes are closed, you'll never know it. You won't understand it. Are you hungry and thirsty for who Jesus is? The book of Mark confronts something totally different. The book of Mark confronts our pride. Mark presents Jesus as a suffering servant. Mark almost immediately begins his gospel with the things that Jesus was doing, his ministry. He first talks about John the Baptist a little bit. He talks about Jesus' baptism a little bit. He talks about Jesus being tempted a little bit. That was all 12 verses, like really quick, 12 verses. And then he immediately jumps into everything that Jesus was doing. His work serving people, healing the sick, preaching to people about the kingdom, performing miracles, eating with sinners, and of course, the ultimate sacrifice of laying down his life for others. Mark focused on Jesus's actions, his service, his sacrifice, his saving. A key verse that expresses all of this, what Mark's emphasis was on is this, Mark 10 verse 45 For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, Mark wanted to display Jesus' humility. The Messiah that came to save also came to serve. Jesus could have come down and demanded everyone to serve him. Instead, he came as a servant. He led by example. He wanted to demonstrate the very attitude that he wanted us to have, that he wants us to have. You know, there's there's a scripture in Philippians that I wanted to read that talks about the attitude of Jesus. And it's Philippians 2, verses 3 through 8. It's a little lengthy, but you know, it fits perfectly with what we're talking about here. And it says this, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to, to, um, to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. See, he came with humility, a servant of all. Our attitude should be the attitude of, of Christ Jesus. The question is, are you vulnerable to God? Do you have a humble heart? Do you humbly allow him to mold you? Do you humbly allow him to work inside of you? Do you give him permission to do that? Are you willing to let God confront the different areas in your life? Can he confront you when he he sees something that needs to change, needs to be worked on? Do you give him that permission? The book of Luke confronts our pain, confronts our pain. Luke presents Jesus as a human being, as the son of man. He repeats that, son of man, as a human, as a regular person. Not a regular person, well, yeah, as a human. The book of Luke talks in detail of John the Baptist's promised conception and birth. It talks in detail about Jesus' miraculous um, conception and birth. We learn a whole lot about uh, even their families, right? We learn of John the Baptist's parents and, of course, even Jesus' parents, all their names, right? We also learn that John the Baptist and Jesus' mothers, sorry, John the Baptist's mother and Jesus' mother were cousins. So that makes John the Baptist and Jesus second cousins. That's the only gospel I think reveals that. They're actually cousins, which is pretty cool. So Mary, 
you imagine, oh, here I go, I'm sorry. Imagine your cousin have to announce every time you enter somewhere. That would be pretty cool. I don't know why I just thought of that, but that's what, that's what John the Baptist had to do. He had to announce when Jesus was coming into the world. I don't think my cousins would like doing that. So, I'm sorry, I don't know why I went there. The, so anyway, so Mary, Jesus' mother, visits Elizabeth, which is John's mother, while they were both pregnant. These are details that um, the book of Luke shares that no other of the gospels actually share. Because what is he pointing to? He's, he's pointing to the humanity of Jesus. This was his mom. This was his tia. You know, they met. They were hanging out when they were both pregnant. How many, how many times do our tias do that or our family members do that? Right? This was his cousin. Right? Although it's not much at all, the book of Luke is the gospel that shares the most about Jesus' childhood. Jesus is visited by the shepherds after being born. I think that's the only gospel that shares that. Talks of Jesus being circumcised on the eighth day. Like, that's such a common thing for all the Jewish kids and babies to go through. You know, you could have just assumed that. Luke, you didn't have to tell us that. We knew Jewish people on the eighth day, they, they circumcised their baby. But he wanted us to remember Jesus was a normal baby. He was circumcised on the eighth day. As a child, Jesus was brought to Jerusalem and presented to the Lord at the temple. We do that now. I presented all my three children here. Every time they were born around or whatever months, my wife decides four months, six months, or younger. You know, they come up and we present them. Why? To say, God, I'm presenting my child to you. I'm dedicating my child to you. I'm going to raise him in a way that honors you and glorifies you. And his parents did that with him. Luke is demonstrating his humanity. On his trip to Jerusalem, Simon, a righteous and devout Jew, prophesies over Jesus. Then on that same trip, a prophetess named Anna, she also prophesied over Jesus. And every year they would take this trip to Jerusalem, um, you know, just a trip to Jerusalem. And one year when Jesus was 12 years old, he got lost. Like there's nothing more human than a 12-year-old getting lost when they're with their parents. He got lost. And his parents didn't even realize when they were on their way back home, they thought that he was just with a crowd of travelers. Little did they know he wasn't around. And then Again, like nothing more human than his response, a 12-year-old's response with sassiness. Like he had actually a, a sassy response. You can go back and check it. He actually had a little bit of a sassy response, you know, and again, just pointing to his humanity. He was actually stay, uh, staying behind just talking to other religious leaders. Luke 2 verse 52 says this, and Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Like Jesus grew. He had to grow in wisdom. He wasn't like a one-year-old savant. He didn't know everything when he was first born. He actually had to grow in wisdom. I mean, stature, I understand. He was born as a baby, but in wisdom, he had to grow too. What Luke is doing is pointing to Jesus' humanity. Why is this important? It's important for a few different reasons. The first reason is this. The Old Testament prophecies spoke to, you know, the, the, prophet, you know, the, the prophecies of the Messiah as the Messiah, as being a human being. So obviously Jesus had to be human. All these prophecies were of a human person, Messiah. The second reason, which is the most important one, is this. Jesus being human was a prerequisite to fulfill God's promised plan of salvation because only a human can redeem all of humanity from our sins. Only a human could do that. Only a human can redeem of humanity. Our saving took a perfect person in Jesus, innocent of all sin, of any sin, to pay the consequence. It took a human to do that, and a perfect human at that. Just as the law required a lamb's blood to be shed, that's what they used to do back in the day. They used to sacrifice animals for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus' blood was sacrificed, was shed. He grew up, lived his normal life, but in perfection, and died in our place. That was his humanity. But the third reason is important too. Jesus' humanity allows him to intimately understand our humanity. Jesus' humanity allows him to intimately understand your humanity. He gets it. He understands it. So if you're dealing with pain, you can find comfort in knowing that no one understands your pain better than Jesus. No one gets it more than him. He was a perfect human being, which no one else can claim, but he died unjustly in the place of imperfect people. A perfect person dying unjustly for imperfect people. Talk about pain. And they beat him, abused him, mocked him, betrayed him, abandoned him, and killed him while he was dying for them. All that pain, all that suffering. See, Jesus knows your pain because he lived it. If anyone understands your pain, is Jesus. He intimately gets it. He's not a distant God. He understands betrayal. 
He understands verbal abuse. He understands physical abuse. These are things that are not foreign to him. These are things that are personal to him because he lived it. He knows it. He knows what you go through because he lived it himself. Your pain, as hurtful as it may be, should not draw you away from God. It should draw you closer to God because who gets it more than him? It shouldn't draw you away from him. It should draw you closer because he knows what you're going through. He gets it. The question is, are you willing to give Jesus the space to heal your heart? And now John, John presents Jesus as God. So the book of John, I think of this. Imagine playing rock, paper, scissor, right? Rock, paper, scissors, shoot. I throw a rock, I beat the scissors, I lose the, the paper. And now imagine you're playing and you say rock, paper, scissors, shoot. You throw your rock or your scissor or your paper and then the other person throws out their arms like this and says, God. Like, that's the cheat code. That automatically, be, God beats everything. He beats rock, paper, scissor. He beats everything, right? That's what John did. John used the cheat code. He went straight to saying God, Jesus is God. Look at what he says in John verses, uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. I want to substitute the word with Jesus, just so you see how it sounds that way. In the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. Jesus was with God in the beginning. Through Jesus, all things were made. Without Jesus, nothing was made that has been made. In Jesus was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. Just in case you're not sure if he's talking about Jesus, right? Look at verse 14, what he says. The word became flesh. We just learned in Luke how human God Jesus was, right? The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. Jesus became flesh. What is John telling us? That Jesus is God. He's creator of all things. He's always existed and always will exist. Nothing came to existence without him. He's the ultimate authority. John, John is telling us that Jesus always, has always been God. That's his nature. He isn't sort of God. He isn't like God. He isn't a God. He's the God. He didn't become God because of good behavior. He's God, the ultimate authority. That's who Jesus is. The question is, how does Jesus' godliness affect you? How does it affect your life? Is Jesus the ultimate authority of your life? Is he king? Is he boss? Who calls the shots? Is it you or is it Jesus? Who is it? The one that's always existed? Or is it you? The one that made you? The, the one that made everything that's around you? Or is it you? Who's the boss? That's what you get confronted by in the book of John. See, this is what the gospel does. The gospel confronts every excuse we make on why we're not close to God. Every excuse. This is the gospel. God created people. And he created people because he created us because he wants to be connected with us. He wanted us to share in his presence. He wanted us to share his love because God is love. And God has always been able to give and receive love because that's in his triune nature. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. But God being good and gracious and humble wants to share this love. So he created us so that we can have this relationship with him and so that his love can overflow and pour onto us. That's a really good plan. That's a very good plan. But something bad happened. Man disobeyed God. And disobedience to, or disobeying God is what we call sin. And with sin enters the consequence of sin, which is death. Death wasn't a part of God's original plan. Life was. Life in his presence. And God knew that he didn't want to keep it this way. So he decided right away, he said, I'm going to fix this. See, we might say, God, why don't you just erase my sins? Or why don't you just forgive me my sins? And God says, I will. We say, God, why don't you just remove my consequence? Like, get rid of the consequence. And he says, I will. But he's going to pay for it. So his plan right away, he said, I'm going to find a way to make this right again. At just the right time, I'm going to send down my son, Jesus. Now, his purpose isn't going to be to live. 
His purpose is to die. His purpose is to die in the payment of our sins. That's a payment we can't make because it means death. And death, spiritually speaking, means we get exactly what we deserve, separation from God eternally. The only way that payment could restore the broken relationship that we have with God is if someone innocent of sin, someone that doesn't deserve it, pays that price. And the only person that doesn't deserve it is Jesus. See, what sin does, by the way, it creates this gap. It breaks that relationship and it creates this gap. You know what it feels like to be betrayed by someone that you really care about, someone that you know? Do you know how distant you feel from that person when you, when you have that sense of betrayal? You feel like you don't even know them? When we sin, we betray God and it creates that gap. And again, the only one that could fix that gap is Jesus. He's the only one that can do it. And so he comes down with this plan to pay that price. But that takes someone, again, like I said, who's never sinned. God himself comes down and is killed on a cross. And his hands and feet are pierced with nails. His blood is shed. I want you to think of going to the store and buying something, right? When you go to the store and you buy something and buy an item that you want, you pay for this item, right? You make the purchase, and then you get a receipt as proof of payment, right? You get a receipt as proof of payment. On the cross, Jesus was making a payment. He was paying for us. And the proof of payment was the resurrection. On the third day, Jesus was resurrected by the power of God. That was the receipt of Jesus defeating sin and death once and for all. That was the receipt. And now because of what Jesus did, we have the opportunity to once again have that restored relationship, like that original plan that God made, to have that relationship with God. And the only way we can have it is through Jesus. That's the only way. Sin still exists for now. It still exists. But now there's a way of crossing over that gap by walking through the cross and getting to the Father. You need the Son to get to the Father. It's as simple as that. All you have to do is walk over the cross. And yet some people still don't do it. Some people still choose not to. They say, God, can't you just forgive my sins? He did, through Jesus. Can't you just erase the consequence? He did, through Jesus. God is saying, all you have to do is pass through the cross. Just come through the cross, and you're back with me. That's all you got to do. That's it. You come through the cross. And yet some people still choose not to. Why? Because you don't know the gospel. I mean, if you're here right now, you just heard it. If you're listening online, you just heard it. It can't be that you don't know it. You just heard it. Is it because you're dealing with pain? No one knows your pain more than Jesus. No one knows more than Jesus. Your pain should draw you closer to him because he gets it. Is it because of pride? Jesus, God himself, came down. Being God came down as a servant. Will you allow, or, or opposite, are you so unwilling to change that it's worth eternal separation from God? Is that really worth it? If there's anything keeping you from growing closer to God, I'm going to ask you to do something. Everyone can just cl- close your eyes. And I'm going to ask you to do something. I'm going to ask you to stand up. And you know if God's tugging at your heart right now, Respond to him. Don't ignore it. Respond to him. Have you never passed through the cross of Jesus? Have you never passed through that cross? Do you need to restore your broken relationship with Jesus? Do you need to restore that? If that's you, stand up. Do you need to seek him more? Because the more you seek him, the more you know him. The more you know him, the more you love him. If that's you, stand up. Do you need to release your pain at the feet of the Father? The only way you can do do that is by going through the cross. And you might say, Joel, I'm already saved. I've already gone through the cross. Yeah, but you can always go back to the cross. In fact, we should always go back to the cross to remember. You should always go back. Because you have to remember, especially in this case, you have to remember your Savior didn't die just for your sin. Your Savior died for your pain as well. Because there will be a day that you will cry no more. And that day is only possible because of what Jesus did. That's the only reason why that's possible. If your pain's holding you back from growing with God, I ask you, stand up. Don't let that be something that's holding you back. And finally, do you need to humble your heart to God? You might be with a hard heart. Nothing's able to go in. Nothing's able to come out. 
This is for the Christian and the non-Christian. Are you willing to make your heart soft towards God? Don't forget he's the ultimate authority. He, He always has been and always will. One day, every knee will bow down and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Wouldn't you rather do that willingly? Because you're going to do it. I promise you, one day you will do it. Wouldn't you rather do that willingly and allow God into your heart, allow Jesus to be the king of your heart? If that's you, I ask you to stand up. And I just want to pray for everyone that's around. If if you're near someone that's standing, you can just extend your arm and pray too. And first I pray, Lord, God, I thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word, for your truth. For allowing us to see you, Jesus. Thank you for coming into our world and becoming a part of us, becoming human like us. We don't deserve your rescue, but you offer it because you love us. Your original plan is for us to be close. And so, Lord, I pray for those that don't know you. I pray that for those that don't know you as their Lord and as their Savior. If they're standing especially and they're taking a step of faith and saying, I want to know you, Lord. I pray, God, that they get to know the truth of who you are I pray that the word that you just shared this morning, Lord, it seeps into their heart and they know you, Lord, and they know what it means for you to be Savior. The only way to the Father, your cross is the only way to our Father, the only way. I pray they understand that, but I pray they also understand what it means for you to be Lord, to be the king of their heart, the ultimate authority. That when we say we believe in you, God, we don't just believe that it's a factual event that happened, that you died on the cross, Lord. We're not saying we just believe on the cross. We're saying we're betting on the cross. I bet my life on the cross. I don't just believe it. I pray that that's their prayer, Lord, that they're betting their life on the cross and saying, Lord, I'm betting my life on you. I'm laying it down the way you laid it down. May that be their prayer, Lord. May they lay down their life on you, Jesus completely confiding in you, completely depending on you, trusting that bridge because it's the only way to the Father. It's the only way to that restored relationship. It's the only way for the payment of our sins. May that be their prayer, Lord. May that be their heart, their belief, their faith. May they accept you as Lord and Savior. And I pray even now they say, Lord, I accept you as Lord and Savior. Jesus I accept you as Lord and Savior. But I also pray, Lord, for anyone that's standing and needs to seek you more. Maybe they know you already. and Maybe they're not standing. I, I say that this is true for all of us, Lord. I pray that we all seek you more. I pray that we can dig deeper and get to know you even more than we know now, God. Pray, I pray, God, that you reveal to us a deeper understanding of who you are, Jesus. Especially now that we're going into this journey of the New Testament. I pray, Lord, that this journey be filled with new and deep understandings and revelations of who you are, Jesus. And not that they're new to your word, but may they be new to us. May they be new to us as a body in Christ fellowship. May May they be new to us individually as followers of Christ. May they be new to us, Lord, so that we can go deeper into this relationship that we have with you. Let us see what we didn't see before. Let us understand what we didn't understand. The truth that we've been hearing, let us see it now and get it and live it. I pray, God, that you give everyone here a hunger and thirst to really know who you are, Jesus, especially those that are standing up, because that means you're tugging at their hearts and you're convicting them to seek you more. I pray, God, that you give them the desire and the ability to seek you more, Jesus. I pray, Lord, for those that are dealing with pain, I pray, God, that they lay down their pain at the feet of the Father, that they may trust you to be the healer, that they may trust you to be the one that they can confide in and trust in because they know that you understand them, Lord. I pray pray that their pain draw them closer to you, not further away, that it not be an an excuse to be far from you. It would be an encouragement to be closer to you because you get them, Lord, and may they trust you to handle their pain. I pray, Lord, for those that are dealing with mental pain, mental issues, Thoughts that are, that are creeping in that are messing with them. Lord, patterns that need, be, need to be broken in, in their minds. Holy Spirit, I pray you do a work in their lives right now. May their, work, may their minds be washed by your word, Lord. May it be renewed by your word. May your word be what fills up their minds so that they may be transformed by you, God. May your word be what fills them up, Lord, so that any time a thought comes in that's not of you, Jesus, it, get, it gets washed, it gets filtered by your truth. 
Work in their minds. Heal their minds, my God. Heal their minds. Heal their bodies, my Lord. May they depend on you to heal their bodies, any sicknesses or diseases, my King Jesus. May they trust in you to be their healer so that you may bring glory to yourself, Lord, when they see the healing. May their faith grow because they see the healing. May the people around them grow because they see the healing in your name, Jesus. I pray for healing hearts. May you heal their hearts, God. May their hearts be healed by your blood, Jesus. May your blood wash their hearts, healing it, cleansing it. Making it new and new, Lord. I also pray, Lord, for a peace that surpasses understanding so that when they're going through the pain, they're looking at you and they know, I don't get it fully, Lord, but I know who you are, Jesus, and that's what I'm banking on. That's what I'm betting on. I'm betting on you, Jesus, and they find peace in you there. And lastly, I pray for those wrestling with pride, especially those standing up that have decided I'm standing up because they know they're wrestling with it, God. I pray that they recognize you, recognize you as the ultimate authority, that they acknowledge you as the ultimate authority. I pray, God, that they allow you into their hearts. They soften their hearts so that you may go in. Lord, I pray. Firstly, I pray that you remove the bandages from their eyes because pride blinds us, Lord. I pray that you remove the bandages from their eyes so that they may see what they weren't able to see because they were being blinded by pride. May they see who you are. May they see the glory of who you are so they may bow down and realize you are the ultimate authority. You're my king. I can't have it any other way. I can't afford any other way. May they see your authority and give you the rightful place that you deserve in their lives. May you break down the the brick walls that they have in their hearts so that you may enter, entering it as as if it were a home, And you go into that secret closet that no one's allowed into, that back room that no one knows is even there. I pray even now, Holy Spirit, you start to reveal to them what it is that you want to go into. And I pray that they say, yes, Lord. Yes, I let you in. I allow you in. Mold me. Work in my heart. Work inside of me. Be my Lord. Be the king of my heart. And I pray, Lord, just for all of us, all of us here in Christ Fellowship, as you've been taking us through this journey of your word, you've been showing us little by little, Lord, of who you are, of what your masterful plan is, of what you've been doing on the surface level, of, what, of what's really been happening in, that, in that, a deeper level of our sin, of that repetition. But then at the deepest level, the masterful plan that you have, your work of art that you've been doing, you've allowed us to see it, Lord. I pray, God, that through the rest of this year, as we continue to go through your word, As we dive deeper into the New Testament, God, I pray, God, that it causes us to be confronted by your truth. And I pray, Jesus, by your Holy Spirit, we're guided to respond, to say, I don't want to stay the way I was when I was ignorant. Now I know the truth and I want that truth to set me free. I want to know you in a deeper way. I want to live in a way I never lived before. Help me have a desire to seek you, Jesus, in a way I never did before. And give me the strength to do it because I can't do it on my own, Lord. Let that be the prayer of Christ's fellowship. Let this be a mark, Lord, a milestone that we look back and we say, from here on out, things were so different. I saw you, Jesus, in such a different light. My bandages were removed. The brick wall was broken. My mind was opened. I have a deeper understanding, a deeper revelation of your truth. I was never the same since that day. Let this be that day, my Lord. So that we may know you and know you intimately the way you plan right from the start. That we share in your presence and share in your love and your love may overflow and pour onto us. So that we may share that with everyone else. Because Lord, there's a world that doesn't know you. And they won't know if it's not start, if it's not coming from us, Lord. We thank you, Jesus. We love you, Lord. We know that you're good. We know that you're good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Christ Fellowship of Elizabeth is a Christian community whose mission is to love God, make disciples, and change the world. You can learn all about us by visiting cfofelizabeth.com. We meet each Sunday at 10.30 a.m. at the Liberty Center in Elizabeth, as well as at various times throughout the week. If you'd like to see a video recording of the full worship service this teaching came from, 
You can watch On Demand on our YouTube channel, and you can join us live online every week by visiting cfofelizabeth.live. We hope you enjoyed this week's message. Make sure you subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or your favorite podcatcher so you never miss an episode. See you next time.